All right, well in the conversation, recently there's been a number of elections where it looked like progressives were gonna have amazing victories. And unfortunately that didn't happen. So we wanna break it down and make sure we learn from it. One of those of course was in Buffalo where India Walton had won the Democratic primary as a Democratic Socialist. And it looked like she was going to be the next mayor of Buffalo, but then the incumbent decided not to concede and do a write-in candidate candidacy instead and wound up winning the general election. India now joins us again after the election to talk about it. Welcome back. Thank you, um, thank you so much for having me, it's great to see you. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, so India, let's break it down. So you won the, the primary by about four and a half points. You shocked uh, the establishment when you did that. Uh, and we talked when you were on earlier about how you won the primary, how you pulled that off. Uh, but then in the write-in campaign, uh, Mayor uh, Byron Brown wound up winning and by a substantial margin. And so first mm-hmm. obvious question is what happened? Um, well, you know, I, I won the primary and Buffalo, New York being a city that is 65% registered Democrats. Usually there's not even a Republican challenger, but um, the incumbent mayor Byron Brown, he doubled down. He actively collaborated and colluded with Republicans um, and waged this writing campaign and he was he was successful. Was he, um, was there a Republican on the ballot or was it just you and him writing it? There was no Republican, there was me and him writing in. But I gotta tell you, Chank, the um, general election, it got really nasty. I mean, you know, I think that progressives and um, especially members like myself, Democrats like myself, really want to focus on the issues that are facing working class, everyday Buffalonians, New Yorkers and Americans. And his campaign really focused on personal attacks, on smearing, um, you know, my personality, my uh, socioeconomic status, and even resorted to downright lies in order to um, stoke fear into folks. Um, I would also add that in the general election, I still won the Democratic vote um, by, you know, a, a couple percentage points. But um, we had unprecedented turnout among conservatives and Republicans. And it was a lot of folks who weren't necessarily voting for my opponent, they were voting against me. Um, so that's just one of the major takeaways that um, I uh, leave this general election with. So I wanted to ask about whether there was a Republican on the ballot for a couple of reasons. One, obviously it makes it much more likely for Brown to be able to win without splitting the ticket among right wingers. Because he ran as the right winger against you, right? And then secondly, it's that's interesting, unless I'm missing something, the Republican Party apparently decided Brown's our guy. We we. We're not even gonna put up a candidate. We'd rather have the corporate Democrat win because corporate Democrat, corporate Republican, really what's the difference? Am I reading that right? I believe so. Um, And I think that a part of our conversation as Democrats has to be more about the difference between a Democrat and a corporate Democrat. And we have to reject this notion that neoliberalism is all that we have to accept, right? We're told vote blue no matter who. And now we're looking at build back better failing. We're looking at student loans not being forgiven. We're looking at in New York State and in Buffalo, unprecedented um, eviction crisis that is looming at the beginning of the year. 
And we have to do something. We have to do more to protect our working class um, true Democrats. And I wish that if there were people who call themselves moderate or centrist, we know that they're really corporate Democrats who serve corporate interests. If they want to be Republicans, they should just go on and be Republicans and let the rest of us decide how we want to govern together. 100%. And then, of course, there's the money and there's the media. And so, uh, unscrupulous uh, people like Brown uh, will use uh, the mainstream media to attack their opponents. So, what did they spread about you, India? That that uh, I don't want to dredge things back up, right? But at the same time, I want to understand the dirty tricks that they use and how they mm-hmm. use it, right? So, when when Brown comes up with something about you, either something that actually happened in your past or something that he's making up. Who does he bring it to? How does it get spread out to everyone? Why do all their dirty tricks work? Well, one of the most successful tactics that was used against me was um, saying that I was going to fire 100 police officers. And they took actual Buffalo police officers, all of them women and people of color, and put them in a commercial. And they said from their own mouths that I was dangerous and that I was going to fire um, 100 officers. And I was going to start with officers of color and minorities and women. Um, And now it was July, right? Um, There were intents of a very good and well researched plan by my campaign that will reallocate funding to things like mental health services, you know, taking some responsibility for non criminal um, calls away from police officers, but it didn't involve a single layoff. But once that is played over and over and over again in, in commercials and on television and on the radio, people begin to believe it, especially if they want to. Um, you know, there was an incident where uh, some overdue parking tickets came up. And, you know, I'm a working class person and I have four children. So, paying a parking ticket, um, especially when we know that parking tickets are predatory and budget gap fillers in the city of Buffalo, paying parking tickets is not a priority for me. But it wound up being a stain. And a lot of people use that as an excuse to not want to take a chance on a working class person because I had overdue parking tickets. Um, that was a uh, you know, a very significant media story when, in my opinion, it just should have been sort of a, a blip in time. And we move on to talking about the real issues that Buffalonians face. See, but I think it's worse than that, actually, India, because if they do that to a white person, it feels like, oh, they had a tough upbringing and we could relate to them. When they do it to a black person, it, it feels loaded with racist stereotypes about irresponsibility, etc. And Mayor Brown is also black, but I think that arguably makes it worse when he uses you know tactics like that against other black candidates. Yeah, and I mean, this is a person who probably hasn't driven himself in his own vehicle for the last 16 years, right? Um, he doesn't have the same issues that black Buffalonians, that working Buffalonians, that poor white Buffalonians have. And that was a part of the major issue in this campaign is that he is so disconnected from the majority of us. You know, we remain the third poorest city. Um, jobs are not keeping up with the rate of inflation. Wages are not keeping up with the rate of inflation. So, um, it was it was it got pretty bad. I mean, there was a, a local black newspaper and a local male writer who called me a hood rat in in the paper. And you know, I like to believe that I'm a little smart. 
um, well spoken, pretty studied. I'm a well read individual. And for a person to go so far as to call me a hood rat, um, not even having met me. I mean, the, the things that I was called, it was it was ridiculous. It was disgusting. The head of the Democratic Party of New York State likened me to um, David Duke. Um, it, it was just a lot. And then the Buffalo News in turn doubled down and said that maybe I'm not like David Duke, but I was very similar to Donald Trump in my rhetoric. Um, they, you know, it was not... Um, it wasn't it wasn't fun, um, but there are lots of lessons to be learned. And I think one of those lessons is that we have to control our narrative. We have to get our side out first and we have to also activate our people. Um, like I said, I won the Democratic vote, um, but we just didn't have enough people come out uh, and, and overcome really those who were set to vote um, against change and against progress. Uh, you know, I, I've been through it. so. I know it a little bit. How personally painful was it? I, um, you know, when I'm doing, I've been doing local media since the election, and they're like, well, what are you gonna do now? And I'm just saying, I have to heal. Right, um, and not only has it been personally painful for me, but you know, having my children ask me questions about things they're seeing on social media and on the news and things like that, um, trying to convince my family and friends not to respond to the nastiness. Um, it's it's been you know painful and hurtful, and to have to relive a lot of my personal traumas um, over and over again in the public sphere was not an easy thing to do, but. I don't have any regrets. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, there are certain things that I would reconsider and maybe do a little bit different, but I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish. We recruited thousands of volunteers. Um, we raised more than a million dollars and we really shook up the establishment. And I don't think that politics in Buffalo will ever be the same. Yeah, and how about the media? When uh, Mayor Brown lied about your proposal and said that you were gonna fire 100 cops and, and that you were gonna fire black cops first, come on, come on, right? Did the media go, that's an outrageous lie, he should be held to account? Or were they like, oh, so what? Um, well, there was one news station in particular that did a verified um, study and they did publish it. Um, but you know, it wasn't sort of the the repetitive cycling of this is not true, this is not true in the same way that a lot of the, the stories about me were replayed and perpetuated. And you know, every time I would have a press conference about an issue or a policy, they would bring up parking tickets or you know, something else that was really unrelated. And I didn't see the same treatment um, with my opponent. And it, it may be because I just wasn't paying that much attention, but I don't feel um, I do feel like the media, at least locally, definitely had a preference for the incumbent. Yeah, it's in the questions. They say, well, I'm just being neutral. I'm just asking you about these outrageous things that I heard about and I'm gonna write about it. And then you know, it'll be forever linked to your name. And I'm not gonna ask your opponent any of the tough questions that I could ask. And Galaji, I wonder right. how people got the opinion that they got. So I've seen that game many, many times against progressives. All right, real quick, do you consider yourself a democratic socialist or a socialist? And do you think there's any difference? 
I think it's semantics. We're splitting hairs, right? I'm a democratic socialist, been a Democrat my whole life, and that is how I participate in electoral politics. Socialism to me is less about political affiliation and more about economics and how we care for people and what the role our government is supposed to play in caring for its people. Um, yeah, you know, again, every time I got in front of a camera, you know, folks were saying, "So you're a socialist?" Well, yeah, you know, I believe that if people pay taxes, if people work a 40-hour work week, they shouldn't have to stand on the breadline. I believe that everyone should have access to health care, quality, affordable housing, and a quality education for their children, and that's not wrong. I don't care what you call it, but the fact of the matter is that. This is a country that's in trouble where we're seeing runaway wealth inequality. We're seeing huge gaps in um, you know, home ownership and educational attainment. And that disproportionately impacts people who look like me, who come from where I come from. And whether I need to call myself a democratic socialist, a socialist or Jesus, um, we have to do something about that. Yeah, the corporate media are a bunch of liars. So the reality is democratic socialist, socialist, capitalist, none of these words have any meaning. It's a mixed economy. We have a mixed economy, Europe has a mixed economy, almost every government has a mixed economy. Some portions are public, some portions are private. But the minute you say, hey, I'd like to stand up for the average American, they say, "Oh, they imply when they call you a socialist India. They're not saying, "Oh, she's a democratic socialist looking to look out for the average person in Buffalo. No, they're calling you a communist. And they were. They were saying that I was going to seize people's private property. Um, yeah. Like it was things that were just like so far out and so ridiculous. And I can't believe that there were some people who actually subscribed to it. And some folks that like knew me well that I've done work with over the years that were perpetuating and, and making people believe it because they were trusted members of our community and they were going out saying it. Pastors and labor leaders were saying socialism is the step before communism. India wants to make us communist. And I'm like, it, it just wasn't true and it was um, very unfortunate. I feel like the, the person who lost out most in this election wasn't necessarily me. Um, life goes on for me, but I think that there are 25,000 people in Buffalo who voted because they wanted to see something change. And there's probably even more than that that didn't make it out to the polls. Um, and, and those are the folks who ultimately um, I don't want to see suffer. So I, I am charged with continuing to fight for those folks. All right, super last thing, I'm gonna try to end on a positive note. Uh, although I'm still a little cynical, but uh, you got a nice note after the election from a surprising person. Uh, who was that? I got a note from um, former President Barack Obama. Um, that it, it, I think that when you go through something like this, all the excitement that came after the primary and thinking that we were really poised to win, and then the disappointment of not bringing home that win, not only you know personally, but all of the people who gave time, talent, energy, money, well wishes. Um, but to have that sealed um, by a person who has done something as historic as Barack Obama, it really felt good. And you know, we can have a whole other conversation about his presidency. Um, you know, and, and and back to to neoliberal politics and its its failures, and um, you know how how the Democrats haven't been coming through for us like they should. Um, but the fact of the matter is that he was a, a great president, and he is a great person and, and role model and a person that I look up to. So it was uh, very heartening to get that note from him. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of his policies, 
Okay, I'm gonna leave it alone for today. But it was a really nice note, and that was a nice gesture on his part. So we appreciate that President Obama reached out to you and did that. So that was lovely notion. All right, yes. India Walton, um, she gonna be back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just the yes, beginning. Yes, I will. Yes, thank you for Absolutely. joining us. Thanks again. All right, uh, we had a crazy situation uh, come up at the end of the last week where uh, there was apparently a challenge on TikTok to bring weapons to school and people worried about um, mass shootings in the schools around the country on the same day. Now, it largely didn't happen, although there's a school shooting every day, so I don't know, I didn't track every one of the school shootings, they're so frequent. Uh, but of course, parents were very concerned and some schools shut down. So we want to bring an expert here, Charles Marino. He's former supervisory special agent with the United States Secret Service uh, to come on here and talk about it. Charles, welcome. Cenk, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, out of curiosity, did you work with Dan Bongino at the time or no? I did. Oh, You did, interesting. I did. Uh, are you allowed to talk about it or no? I mean, we can if you want offline, absolutely. <laughs> offline, okay, got it. <laughs> okay, now uh, back to the serious issues. So, um, Charles, this felt like it was pulling the fire alarm at the school, except at every school uh, in the country. Yeah. And so, yeah. first, let you know the situation better than I do. So, what happened on December 17th, and then we'll get to how do we fix it. Yeah, listen, essentially what we've seen through TikTok and, and some other social media platforms is, uh, you know, they issue these ridiculous challenges. Um, some are harmless and, and some are, are more harmful, as we saw here with the school threats. And unfortunately, some of these younger children pay attention to this and decide to carry these, these challenges, if you will, out. And, and what the TikTok challenge essentially did is it related to the threats against multiple schools across the country is it put an enormous amount of pressure and responsibility on a number of groups. The social media platform, TikTok in this case, it puts pressure on the parents, on the schools and on law enforcement. And what happens is while this turned out to be a hoax based on this challenge, um, if this had been the real thing and any one of those four groups that I just described didn't do what they should to be proactive, then you've got a really bad event here that starts to come together and take place. Look at this, unfortunately we have domestic terrorists too. And so if they right. wanted to use these platforms, by the time the videos got pulled down, it could spread like a wildfire, right? So how big a threat is this and is this gonna happen forever and ever or does social media have any way of controlling this? Well, social media has been forced to put in very much so proactive programs, intelligence programs, keyword search programs, if you will, to identify these threats early. Let's not forget that when these social media platforms came into existence, they're, they're protected by Title 47, Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, where they're not held liable based on what's posted on their 
platforms. There's a lot of talk about changing that. And this is one example of why people want to see this changed because they feel that it's going to provide more of an urgent undertaking and responsibility to the platforms themselves if they bear some responsibility to what's posted on there. Now, the social media platforms don't want those changes to come, although offline they tell you that they probably are needed with the evolution of social media. But as a result, they're going to be more proactive and responsible in relaying those threats to the people that need to know and primarily to law enforcement, as we saw in this case. Yeah, these challenges are, I mean, anywhere from very dangerous to a real pain in the ass. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the challenges was uh, to slap a teacher on one day. Uh, right. You know, right. That, oh my God, it, that yeah. drives me nuts. That's awful, awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but now on the more serious stuff, um, you, you talk about profiles. Um, so when you're looking out for on a day like December 17th, where theoretically a school shooting could happen anywhere in the country, um, and I don't love profiles, you know, but um, but we talk about if they're necessary, et cetera. But what do you think is the profile to look for here? Yeah, I can tell you, you know, my former agency, the Secret Service, has this great division, the National Threat Assessment Center, that participates and works with local law enforcement and schools, school districts around the country to teach them about events that have taken place and what could have been done better. And also those events that have been disrupted in their latest report, for example, they studied 67 school plots that were disrupted. And why were they disrupted? They were disrupted because something was picked up on the front end by the teacher, a parent, by law enforcement. In other words, it was proactive. But based on their studies, if we had to go you know, through a profile, listen, it's straightforward. And I know I agree with you what you say. Normally, you don't like profiles. But you know, in this case, where you're learning and gathering all this information from one of the premier law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the country, I think the Secret Service calls it right here. And that is, they're white teenagers. They either are attending the school that's being threatened or have attended the school, okay? They're, they're giving off signs in advance that something is wrong and they're getting missed. And, and the worst part here is that these kids have access, they're finding access to a legally purchased firearm within their home that is just not secured by a simple $100 safe. And I think the example that we're seeing in Oxford, Michigan, is that here we had a very troubling situation. A lot of clues were missed on the front end by the school and others. And then you had irresponsible parents that went ahead and introduced a legally purchased firearm into the equation that was not properly secured. And like I said earlier, then you've got a recipe for disaster. So Charles, I want to come back to the racial part of this in a second because the racial profiling often goes off the rails, right? And yeah. and in this case, yeah. it happens to be for white people, but that could also go off the rails. So I'm gonna come back to that right. in a second. But I don't mind behavior profiling, that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing at an airport, oh, target the brown looking folks, I don't love that obviously, right? But if you're saying, hey, the guy's acting nervous, he's sweating, there's, you know, Okay, well, look, not everybody everybody who's nervous and sweating at an airport is is a bomber, but could a higher percentage be? Yeah, could be. So the behavioral targeting makes sense. So in this case, young males as opposed to young females, come on. Any realistic look at it says 
If you're gonna profile at all, you're gonna narrow the field at all, you should look at males, right? That, that's right. obvious. We don't need to debate or discuss that, right? But so one part where the right wing would say no is if you got guns in the house, I think it's fairly obvious that you're more, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a shooter and everyone is unlikely to be a school shooter, right? But of the yeah. people who do school shootings, I would imagine a massive percentage of those have a gun at home. Well, here's the deal, and that is legal gun owners have a responsibility to secure firearms responsibly. I'm a legal gun owner, and I secure all my firearms. Um, you know, put them in a safe place, keep them away from from children, make sure they're locked up, and that goes for the ammunition as well. So, I think what we see taking place in Oxford with respect to, um, you know, the shooter's parents, I, I think that's the way we need to go. Parents need to bear some responsibility, and if at the end of the day. All of this anarchy is being caused by the fact that this individual, this child, is able to get his hands on a legally purchased firearm that's not put in a $100 safe in the home and kept out of their hands. Then parents need to bear the responsibility. This is not gun control. This is about doing the right thing if you go out and legally obtain a firearm. End of story. And as well as the profiling goes, listen, unfortunately, you alluded to it at the beginning of the, of the interview here and and that is we have way too many of these that have occurred across the United States in past years and so as a result of that we are able agencies like the secret service and the FBI are able to go back and look and say what is the profile of the type of individuals that are carrying out these attacks in schools and and the facts are there the facts are there yeah so Charles, I was gonna ask about that. So uh, obviously you're not anti-white, you're white, right? And I don't know what your right. right, and I don't know what your politics are, and that's not relevant in this context. But what I'm curious right. about is okay, if it turns out as the as you're indicating here, the data says it is overwhelmingly white young males that do the shooting. Do you have any idea why? Because like I socioeconomic conditions, that makes sense. Right in in certain kinds of crimes, and and some races are more heavily represented in uh, in different classes, right? It's different socioeconomic classes. So there's logic right. that you can trace back to. Oh, that's why it's happening, right? But that's in right. this case, why white? Yeah, you know that's a great question here. Um, as far as stopping the threat, let me say this: as it relates to race, right? As as a security practitioner here for well over twenty five years, you're never going to focus on race, right? In the case of of protecting schools, you want to make sure that you have redundancies in place to prevent an attack like this from occurring, right? So that if you have a failure on the front end with the social media platform, or you have a failure with a parent, or something gets missed by a teacher, ultimately you want to make sure that you have something in place at that school that's going to prevent this individual from. From coming in with a firearm, right? And that raises the question, do you have screening? Do you have magnetometers at schools? Do you have bag checks at school? I'll leave that to the school districts, but I can tell you right now, I don't think we're too far off from that. And you see that being implemented across some schools. So I agree with you as far as focusing on a race based on the history of who's carrying out these attacks would be a bad thing. You want to protect against all threats that could be coming your well your way and not focus on one specific race. To your larger question, I wish I could answer that. 
Um, I do not have an answer for that. Why it's focused on on white teens? Um, these are young adults um, that you know come from typically good families that just did not do the right thing as it comes to a firearm or miss some warning signs. All right, I have a comment because, and then I'll last question after that. Because yeah. as you were, as you and I were discussing this, Charles, I came up with a theory. I mean, I never connected it before. Uh, yeah. But uh, it could be that honestly, a higher percentage of white families are right wing, and the right wing in this country is more in favor of gun rights and are more likely to have guns in the house. More, it's not that they're white; it's that there are more guns in the house that lead to the school shootings. That could be it. But even so, I don't think we should profile based on race. It's not worth the damage that it does to divide us based on race in a situation like this for the extra percentage chance that you're going to profile correctly. Which I think is small. Does that does that sound right to you? At least the second half. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say the same way we're we're talking about not focusing on race. I would also not focus on political ideology, right? As it as it relates to weapons. Listen, I, I'm down here in South Carolina, and I can tell you one thing, Chank, and that is on both sides of the aisle down here. Everybody has firearms. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, an independent, or a Democrat. Um, there's firearms in the home, right? They're used for for hunting. They're used for for clay shooting. So you know, in a place like South Carolina, that would be a detriment, right? To try and figure out well, why is it that you know these these young white kids that are shooting up schools? You know, is it because their parents are right wing and have more guns? In a place like this, no, everybody's got guns, right? So I, you know, I think that's kind of the wrong path, and and there's there's definitely got to be some some deeper meaning down here. Is it you know because of means? Uh, is it because of the ability to purchase these things? Is it because they want to introduce younger kids to weapons earlier in their life? I, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, there's a way to stop it. That you got to secure the the things that are in the house, the weapons that are in the house, and the other thing is you got to stop them from getting in the schools, right? So if you do those two things, and these kids can't get a hand uh, their hands on what can do the most damage in the least amount of time, right? That stops the first part of the equation. And if yeah. by chance they get their hands on them, and make sure they don't get into the schools, but really a good threat management program. Uh, introduced by the school, identify these key indicators early, and in most cases, these kids they they need help. Yeah. So Charles, yeah, I was going to get to the last question. By the way, just to be absolute clear for the audience, we both agree yeah. the white part is by far the least relevant part, and that they should not focus on that in the profiling. So uh, absolutely, yes. So now uh, the the question is, look, I think especially after this last case that. There should be a rebuttable presumption of the parents being at least negligent, and that they should be investigated in every one of these school shootings. And I know it's traumatic for the parents; they went through something here. But how'd they get the gun? How'd the kid get the gun? And so I'm saying you can rebut the presumption. You can show no, we we did everything we could, and we were not negligent. But I think that as a matter of course, we should look at the parents every time. I'm curious what you think about. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's about time. You know, I've heard enough of this as, as you have, and the rest of the country has. And I think the American public, especially folks, you know, I've got I've got kids, uh, you know, in, in middle school here, uh, and in high school, and and you know, this is my nightmare. And and quite frankly, I'm getting tired of hearing about it. And and you know, 
that the parents bear responsibility. And that is, you know, listen, the Michigan case was was just the ultimate fail. I, I mean, this kid did not show up to school on day one and start displaying, you know, this concerning behavior on day one. This this behavior was going on well in advance, I can guarantee that. So one, the parents had to have known about it, right? And if not, then they missed some serious signs. But I'm going to say that they observed this disturbing behavior previously. And then to go out and introduce a, a handgun into the equation and not secure it, it's just, it is negligent. You use the right word. Um, and they're being charged well above negligence right now. I mean, they're being charged for the actual murders. So we'll see what kind of precedent this sets. But at the very least, parents do need to be held responsible for, for actions like this and kids getting their hands on handguns. And you know what? I hope this does set the right tempo around the country and makes other gun owners, whether they're on the right side or the left side of the aisle, makes them step up and become more responsible more responsible with handguns in the house. All right, makes sense. Charles Marino, security expert. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks, Chuck.